This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today's episode is one in a series of seven episodes where we are going to be discussing the book, The Tao of Fully Feeling by Pete Walker. And I'm going to break this book into seven segments with two chapters per episode so that we can maybe take some time and just break it down and go a little bit slower and have some discussion around the chapters that we're reading. So today's episode, we're going to be looking at chapter three and chapter four. Now, the author starts out chapter three acknowledging that language never fully renders emotional experience. And then he says that English is particularly deficient in words that capture the subtleties of emotional experience. He says there are, for instance, many different kinds of tears, tears of loss, relief, physical pain, compassion, joy, pride, gratitude, and aesthetic awe. Similarly, there are different kinds of laughter, the roar of joy, the chuckling of relief, the giggling of silliness, the tittering of nervousness, the sniggering of derision, and the ambivalent laughter evoked by tickling. Anger too has its variety of tones, as in the anger of assertiveness, of pain, of rage, of hate, of belittlement, of self-protection, of championing another, and of indignation at what's unfair. He says, as inadequate as language is for fully conveying emotional experience, there are nonetheless ways in which words, especially maybe poetry or music or different things like that, that tap into some of that experiential process. He says they will bring us closer to our feelings. And then he starts to talk about the fundamental dynamics of the emotional nature. So he says, we're going to be able to enhance our ability to fully feel when we have an understanding of the four key dynamics of the emotional nature. So he talks about, he breaks it down into holism, polarity, ambivalence, and flow. And he says, while thinking and feeling serve many separate discrete functions, it is noteworthy that they complement each other in enriching ways as well. He says, thinking, for example, enhances our ability to communicate our feelings when we write or speak poetically, while feeling enhances our listeners' understanding of us when we speak passionately. He says the interrelationship of the thinking and feeling function are balanced and mutually enhance each other in the healthy individual. When either one dominates, so I'm either a feeling person or I'm a thinking person, there can be considerable life diminishment. Oftentimes, you know, I can get a feel in a first session with a client of whether they're imbalanced one way or the other. And for myself, there have been times where I have overvalued thinking and there have been times where I have overvalued feeling in ways that made me kind of move in an unbalanced way and not be able to connect with the other one in a way that was helpful. So let's get into these 
different dynamics that he talks about in this book. So the first one is holism. So that's with a W-H-O-L-I-S-M. So like the whole. And he quotes author Jane Roberts, who says, the emotions will not feel like stepchildren with only the best dress being admitted. They will not need to cry out for expression for they will be fully admitted as members of the family of the self. So holism, he says, refers to the fact that the emotional nature cannot be broken down into individual separate feelings existing independently from one another. And that feeling is bound to holism more so than thinking. He says, you know, generally speaking, we have more choice about our thoughts. You know, we can categorize, we can store thoughts in memory, we can recall certain parts of a memory selectively while not recalling other parts of a memory. And depending on our ability to concentrate or hold them in our awareness, we can focus on that for a certain amount of time with our thoughts. I love this part where he says we can even go to libraries and bookstores and shop for thoughts and ideas that we would prefer to contemplate. I have not thought of libraries as that way of a place where we can go and shop for the things that maybe are pleasing to us or reinforce our own way of thinking instead of expanding our thinking. He says, we have no such luxury with our feelings. I may decide to be happy. I may tell everyone I know that I'm happy. And I may even inscribe it in gold letters on parchment to prove it to myself. But if I do not happen to actually feel happy, then my proclaimed feeling has about as much weight as the printed word happy. He says, the feeling nature is not like a supermarket where only the favorite brands of emotion can be selected from a larger number of available products. The cart of the psyche cannot be filled with pleasant emotions while the unpleasant ones are left on the shelf. I know there was a significant time in my life where I shut off, and you know this is kind of what he's talking about in this book, shut off the awareness and the feelings of what happened to me in the house that I grew up in and shut off the emotions that went with that because it's what I had to do to somewhat protect my psyche and move forward in my life. But what I also learned is that I couldn't shut off those negative feelings and still keep the positive ones. They were this package that either turned off or stayed on. And, you know, I see that with um, clients often, like either the emotions have stayed on and have become emotionally dysregulating to them and they're interfering with their ability to function or have healthy relationships or hold a healthy sense of self, or they've been completely turned off, which also interferes with this ability to have a healthy sense of self and to be able to function and have healthy relationships. He says that real joy cannot be purchased without a requisite amount of grief, as love cannot be purchased without strife or forgiveness bought without blame. Wrath, fear, and sadness are as irreplaceable to the fully feeling person as love, trust, and joy. Our lives become more resplendent when we use the entire wardrobe of emotional color, not just pink, glitter, and baby blue. He says individuals who only identify with positive feelings often become bland, deadened, and dissociated in the feeling-less desert, a true no-man's land. 
In the psychic desert of disavowed emotion, the smoldering heat of repressed anger evaporates our feelings of love and affection, leaving us emotionally dehydrated. Rejecting emotions because they are sometimes unpleasant is like cutting off body parts because they are not pretty. He says the same is equally true of good and bad emotions. Choosing only preferred feelings or socially accepted feelings or feelings that make us comfortable is like choosing to eat without accepting the necessity of elimination. So that's the part of wholeness, right? That wholeness is our feelings are connected and we can't like separate them out or select the feelings that we want to experience uh, while also deselecting the ones that we don't want to experience. Then he talks about the second dynamic, which is polarity. So he says the dynamic of polarity governs the many phenomena in life that are composed of opposing but interrelated halves. So he says in chemistry, polarity manifests as the positive and negative terminals of a battery. In physics, in the positively charged protons and negatively charged electrons of atoms. And in everyday life, polarity is seen in such interdependent opposites as night and day, hot and cold, male and female, hunger and satiation. He says in the East, the principle of polarity is called the Tao, which is the part of the title of the book, right? The Tao of fully feeling. He says, our emotional natures are made up of many pairs or poles of seemingly opposite experiences. Common emotional polarities are happiness and sadness, like and dislike, trust and suspicion, elation and depression. He says, just like a magnet, we cannot exist without opposite poles. We cannot be fully feeling without embracing our inherent emotional polarities. Now, there are gradated bands of emotional intensity that stretch between each pair of emotional opposites. He says our emotional experience shifts from one pole to another along a continuum of feeling, and there are many different degrees of feeling on each particular emotional continuum. We are all subject to both gradual and sudden oscillations between the emotional extremes of the various feeling continua. I think sometimes I've known people where it's not a gradual thing. It's not a gradiated thing where they're moving along a continuum and instead it feels like they go from one end of the continuum to the exact opposite end of the continuum in terms of intensity. He says, between terrified paranoia and fully vulnerable trust, there are varying degrees of feeling suspicious or safe. But we're going to talk about this a little bit later in chapter four. I think sometimes while that may be true, that there are actually, like it might be factual, right? That there are varying degrees of feelings of suspicious or of safety. But we may not tune into that. We may not be aware. We may be in denial of that until all of a sudden it's a threat and we're in that danger mode. He says, between exhilarating joy and wishing for death, sorrow, there are numerous shades of being glad or being sad. Between heart-pounding love and exploding hate, there are many less intense states of like and dislike. And at the midpoint of each continuum, there's a middle ground where we don't really experience any emotional excitation at all. Disinterest, for example, lies midway between heart-pounding love and intense hate, on the borderline between like and dislike. 
when we refuse to feel the full intensity of our emotions, we will become depressed and stuck in the safe and dreary midland plains of the emotional continua. He says apathy is a common result of throwing out the baby of emotional vitality with the bathwater of unaccepted feelings. Whereas the practice of fully feeling teaches us to move more fluidly along the different bands of the emotional spectrum. Day to day and sometimes even hour to hour, vacillations may occur on any particular continuum. On the love and loneliness continuum, for instance, we may experience many subtleties of feeling connected or separate. Sometimes with little apparent reason, we may suddenly feel particularly lonely and cut off. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, we may just as suddenly feel strong, loving connectedness with others. I know for me, like when I travel for work, and so I'm the only one from my family traveling, right? And I'm separated from my family. There can be a sense of loneliness as I leave. And I'm aware of that. Like I'm aware leading up to the trip. I mean, I've also mentioned I have issues with like travel or vacations. But I can feel... I can feel myself preparing to leave, even if it's a good thing. And I'm even meeting friends that I, you know, colleagues that I know that I haven't maybe seen for a while, or I'm just looking forward to the training or the new information I'm going to be learning. I can feel that sense of separateness or that sense of loneliness or disconnection. And when I'm coming home, I usually feel intense feelings of appreciation or love or gratitude for my family that I'm returning home to. He says, lastly, there are many complex emotional states experienced by fully feeling people. Sometimes more than one feeling continuum is resonating at once, and we feel a mixture of emotions. This can occur in deep grieving when the experience of loss is so intense that rage and tears surface simultaneously. Jealousy is also a complex emotional reaction. It is often a turbulent combination of fear, anger, loneliness, and abandonment. Deep experiences of love are another example of compound emotions. Love may involve the simultaneous experience of fondness, affection, hope, joy, trust, and compassion. So he says, understanding polarity helps us deal with normal loneliness. Now, this prompted an interesting discussion. I thought it was an interesting discussion in my men's group. So we have a group in WhatsApp that, you know, everybody can participate in. And often there's some discussion or just different things that are going on in that in that uh, text chat when group is currently going and sometimes when it's not. So one of the guys in the group mentioned that I was doing this episode, these episodes on the Tao of Fully Feeling. And, you know, he's read the book several times. And so he was, you know, in chapters three and four, which we're discussing in this episode. And he said, you know, I'm reading about the fundamental dynamics of the emotional nature. So holism, all emotions come together. We don't necessarily choose what they are. Polarity. Emotions exist along a continuum or spectrum, such as fear of death, level paranoia, and blindly trusting safety. There's a wide range there. Then we're going to get into ambivalence, which is holding two opposite feelings at the same time. 
And then finally, we're going to talk about flow, which is that the emotions rise and emotions fall. The, the emotions come and the emotions go. So he says, as, as part of the section on polarity that we just discussed, the author explains that loneliness is a normal feeling and one shouldn't feel too bad about feeling lonely. And he asked the group, he said, have you all found that to be the case? And so several of the guys, you know, piped in and it led to a good discussion. And, you know, one of the guys said, no, for me, 90% of the time, loneliness just feels shitty. I equate it with a lack of value in the minds of others. He says, I know that's overreacting, but that's how it feels for me. And so, you know, I, I commented and I said, I think that's a great question about feeling lonely. I want to talk about it just for a minute and share with you what I shared with the men's group, because I think it's a common emotion that clients that I have are dealing with. And it feels a lot more than what he talks about in this book, which is just a normal feeling. It comes, it goes, we shouldn't get too reactive to it or, or read too much into loneliness. So I said, let's remember so far he's talked about the unwritten rule that we cannot criticize our parents or how they parented us. And often this leads us to have repressed emotions. Very quick summary of chapters one and two. And then, you know, he also covers the cost of repressing our emotions and not being able to feel what we feel and express them appropriately. And he talks about the importance of being angry and allowing ourselves to feel the anger towards our parents we could not feel as children. In fact, in the subtitle of this book, it's Harvesting Forgiveness Out of Blame. And I don't think we've gotten into this yet, but he actually encourages people to, to assign blame. Let's assign blame. So I think this is where our experience with loneliness actually comes from, for most of us, which is not what he's saying, which is it comes, it goes, it's not that big of a deal. So if I've not been able to adequately express my emotions about my experiences and my life story, and I've not been able to give blame or assign responsibility to the people in my life who created those experiences and those emotions, what that leaves me with is not a really great sense of self. And because I don't know myself, I can't really ever have other people know me. And so I'm not really ever going to have really meaningful or deep connections that I can draw from. Now, that's a whole different kind of loneliness than what he's addressing. Because that level of loneliness that I just described is actually untapped grief work. And it's a big deal. And we feel it like it's a really big deal. Even if we misunderstand what it's about... And we think it's about us and our value, or we just experience it as be feeling shitty or less than. I think, though, when we've adequately grieved our childhood, which means we go through the anger stages, we go through bargaining, we feel a deep sorrow, come to some acceptance, we're back at denial and anger. I think when we've adequately grieved our childhood and we've been able to say what we needed to say, with the words we needed to use and properly express the emotions at the intensity level that we experience them. Now we can have relationships where we're truly seen and we're known and we know ourselves and we have acceptance and love and value. That's a whole different place to be working from. So I said, you know, let me share with you this experience that I had a couple of years ago. 
So I had done a lot of work on my family of origin issues and childhood and how that was impacting me as I grew into adulthood and was married and having my own kids. I had done a lot of work on that. I wouldn't say today that I'm done, but I think it's evident that I've done a lot of work on it. But a couple of years ago, about, you know, 12, 13 years ago, I was in this place where I went back into therapy because I had a friendship that ended in a really explosive way, I would say, in a really in a way that was really hurtful and damaging to me. And so I went into therapy. It had me questioning who I was. It had me questioning my worth. It had me questioning all sorts of things about myself that I thought I had answered those questions and kind of settled that. So at this time, I, you know, had worked with a therapist. I had worked through a lot of the things that were said about me and to me about who I was and was more on stable ground. I was kind of in the wrapping up place of working with this therapist at this time on that issue. And I had a lot of clarity about things in my life. I was understanding that situation differently, but I was feeling lonely. Not the kind of lonely where I hadn't unpacked it or I hadn't really examined it and explored it and been able to grieve it. I was just lonely. It wasn't even that I couldn't be comfortable with myself. You know, I I had a relationship with my husband where we enjoy spending time together. I would count him as probably my best friend. He'll listen to me and he also shares things with me. And, you know, I was, I was not feeling like my connection with him had been disrupted. And in many ways, this experience impacted both of us in different ways that actually brought us together more. And we had a deeper connection or a different connection now having gone through that together. But I also knew that it wasn't fair to him that I all of my emotional needs, all of my social needs all onto him and that he's the only one who can meet any of those needs for me. And while he was doing a pretty good job, I also knew like I, I need a friend. I, I don't have a girlfriend and I was missing that and I could feel that there was kind of this void or there was this hole in my life where I thought these other two friends had filled that. Now in the process of examining that, I had come to learn some things that I overlooked, sometimes willingly and sometimes, I think, um, in some positive ways, like I was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, things like that. But I was, I, I was missing having friends. It wasn't a huge deal. It's not like it derailed me or it made me feel like I wasn't a worthwhile person or I didn't deserve friends. I just knew that I had a vacancy that I wanted to fill in my life, right? Kind of, I had a help wanted sign. I want a friend. Now it didn't come quickly because I don't think friendships actually come quickly. But today I can say that I have two really good friends in my life that I know that they know me and I know them. I feel like I can have deep conversations with them. They will share who they are. They'll share the struggles of their life. I'll share the struggles with my life. We'll also share the successes of our life. And so I'm not necessarily feeling that loneliness there. And it makes me really value these new friendships and the relationship that I have with each of them 
because I know what it was like to not have that. It also hasn't been a competition with my husband, which was one of the things I was starting to become aware of with these other friends where it didn't work out. I felt like the friendship in some ways was pulling away from my relationship with my spouse, which I didn't think needed to happen and I didn't want that to happen, but I felt that it was happening. And with my new friendships, I didn't feel like that was the case. I didn't have to give more weight to one relationship versus the other, and they seemed to just fit into my life in the way that I needed them to. And so I think there's a difference when it comes to loneliness, where sometimes that loneliness is actually untapped grief, or it's work that needs to be done so that we know ourselves and we have acceptance for ourselves. And that doesn't make us question who we are. It doesn't make us feel shame or guilt about ourselves. It doesn't get us confused. It doesn't emotionally dysregulate us. So then he talks about the third dynamic. We're going to talk about ambivalence. He says, of all the complex emotional experience, ambivalence is possibly the most vilified and the most misunderstood because we're not supposed to be ambivalent, right? We're supposed to know. We're supposed to make a decision. We're supposed to pick a side, right? He says, ambivalence occurs when an individual entertains opposing emotional experiences at the same time. He says it's also the state of rapidly vacillating between contradictory feelings. You know, I don't know if I want you to stay or if I want you to go. You scare the hell out of me, but I also want to move in closer to you. I want to be vulnerable and I'm feeling a sense of skepticism about whether I can be vulnerable with you. I think there's all sorts of ambivalence about things where we're saying, I like this for the most part, but I also don't like this. And that's you know, sometimes I would say to client, that's slicing a little bit thinner. Instead of having to decide and pick a side and say, I mostly like it, so I like it. We actually get to embrace and hold the ambivalence saying, I like these things and these things don't work for me. And I think we miss that in our current political divide, in our current stagnation in the United States that we're experiencing. I think it's this lack of being willing to embrace ambivalence and to vilify ambivalence. He says almost everyone feels ambivalent at one time or another. It can be related to our work where we're feeling that we really love our job. And then there's other times that we don't love our job. And maybe that happens on the same day. You know, recently I've thought about doing this with my company for a long time, which is doing like end of year reviews. But to be honest, the holidays get so busy or leading up to the holidays get so busy and then we don't do the reviews. And so I finally decided this year, like, actually, we're going to do end of year reviews. I send out an email saying, I want to do end of year reviews, but in February and they're not going to be very formal. And I came up with some questions and I email them out and say, hey, we can discuss any of these questions. These are just kind of some prompts to get you thinking, help me understand where you are how I can be supportive, how I can help you achieve goals that you have, that type of stuff. And, you know, as I've been having those and meeting with my employees one-on-one, you know, one of the first questions I ask them is, what are you most excited about when it comes to your job right now? And every time I have asked that question, they light up in a certain way, right? And I hear them come alive about what they love about their job. And I'm also hearing As we go through, I meet with them for about an hour. As we go through the hour, I also hear how burned out they feel. 
and how tiring and emotionally heavy the last couple years with COVID and just everything that's going on in the world, how heavy that feels and that they are carrying that and they feel somewhat burned out with that. They feel the heaviness of that. And I'm, I'm getting that. I hear that, right? So again, it's that ambivalence. I love my job. I'm so excited about these things. This is what my goals are. This is where I want to, what I want to accomplish in the next year. And oh my gosh, I'm so tired. Oh my gosh, this is wearing on me. He says, ambivalence occurs in the experience many people have of laughing and crying at the same time. For me, that's one of my favorite emotions. I don't like it when it's happening, but it's just such a intimate, I think, experience when it does happen. But he says, it's so unacceptable to be ambivalent that most of us conclude that we don't know whether we're laughing or crying at such a time. And even at our worst, we'll denigrate ourselves for having such a contradictory experience, laughing in the midst of sorrow, deep sorrow. He says, the fact that it is possible, not to mention normal and healthy, to feel contradictory emotions simultaneously is almost incomprehensible in our culture. Most people repress the unpreferred half of their ambivalence and only experience it as anxiety. We are so ruled by black and white thinking that we judge ambivalence as evidence of stupidity or defectiveness. Society routinely shames us for having mixed emotions or opinions about anyone or anything. He says, we have probably all been assaulted with the phrase, make up your mind. When we've wavered in our feelings about someone or something, how absurd this is when using our minds to determine our feelings is as impossible as controlling the size, shape, and frequency of the ocean's waves. And while we can make up our minds about how we respond to our feelings, we cannot cognitively predetermine our emotional responses. If a loved one hurts you, you will instinctively feel angry even if you instantly repress your anger. He says, for many of us, the anger of our childhood was so thoroughly extinguished that our angry reflexes are no longer conscious. They still register unconsciously when our feelings get hurt, no matter how loving we've made up our minds to be. He says, we cannot recover emotionally if we do not resist those who try to bully us out of our ambivalence. And then the last dynamic that he talks about is flow. So flow is a term that describes the ever-shifting, unpredictable rise and fall of emotions. An appreciation of flow, the fluid quality of the emotional nature, allows us to respond to our feelings in healthy ways. When we surrender to our emotional flow, we reclaim the thrilling spontaneity we were born with that we can still see in any child who has not been over-disciplined. I've worked with clients where because of the unpredictable rise and fall of emotions, they've just come to distrust emotions at all and have kind of cut them out of their lives. I know people who will just say, I don't trust emotions. They can change. They can come and they can go. They can be here one moment and gone the next. Like, why would I ever trust emotions? We're not recognizing that that's the flow of emotions that allows us to be fully feeling human beings. He says avoidance of unwanted emotions commonly leaves us trapped in chronic low-grade manifestations of them. Many long-enduring moods are caused by repressed emotions that slowly and biliously leak into consciousness. When underlying emotions are offered no effective expression and release, the moods they create contaminate and dominate awareness for inordinately long periods of time. He says the most expeditious way to get past an unpleasant emotional experience is to embrace it, to fully feel it, and to express it. 
He says, when we recover the ability to grieve, we move more gracefully through difficult emotional transitions. The temporary departure of loving and happy feelings sometimes feels like the death of our sense of well-being. Grieving is helpful at such times and often promotes the rebirth of preferred feelings. A wonderful grace of self-renewal comes from immersion in the invigorating waters of fully and flexibly feeling. For most of us, the immersion begins when we open to the process of grieving the losses of our childhoods. And that takes us into chapter four. So chapter four talks about the gifts of grieving. And I think I've said before, oftentimes, you know, we, we think about grief in our culture. We're not very good at grieving. And we think about grief in terms of death. And we don't understand how often we experience grief. And that it's not really just about death, but because we avoid looking at grief in our everyday life, we become especially resistant to dealing with death. He says, grieving plays an essential role in the process of reclaiming the capacity to fully feel. An individual's emotional recovery is, in fact, reflected in the degree to which she reclaims and regularly welcomes grieving as the ongoing life-enhancing process that it is. Grieving can restore our enthusiasm for life, no matter how dire and tragic our losses. That sounds good, right? Makes it sound a lot simpler than it might be. He says, time does not heal. No, he's, he's quoting somebody here, Peter Leach and Ziva Singer. They say, time does not heal wounds without acknowledgement of what has happened. You need to clarify your feelings and express them in a way that defines in detail what you have lost and how much you care about what you have lost. So grieving, you know, is the human process of expressing sadness and anger about hurt and loss. It's our psyche's natural way of releasing the pain caused by the loss of someone or something we value. Grieving is as necessary to emotional health as urinating and defecating are to physical life, he writes. Grieving removes the emotional energy of hurt and pain from the psyche as the physiological functions of elimination remove chemical toxins from the body. Grieving is the natural process of bringing new life and hope out of loss and death. You know, often I talk to my clients about this process that we're going through and that at the end of it, we have to make meaning of it. We have to make meaning of the suffering we have to make meaning of the experiences, both of those that we are happy to have had and those we wish we wouldn't have had. We have to make meaning out of all of it. And he's saying that actually is grief work. He says, when we work through our denial and recognize exactly how we were diminished by our parents, grieving helps us exhume the parts of ourselves that were sent to an early grave in childhood. So he talks about how the emotions that we recover through the process of grieving, fuel intentionality. He says, grieving unlocks the motivating force of intentionality. Intentionality is the process of fully investing our mental, spiritual, and emotional energy in our personal dreams and ambitions. So why do you think that having experienced less than a nurturing childhood, right? Less than a loving, warm childhood would interrupt that process of us fully investing our mental, our spiritual, and our emotional energy in our personal dreams and ambitions? Well, I think, you know, some of that is that many of us were shamed out of trying to aspire to those things. I know, you know, I've shared this before in different episodes. I know, you know, that I 
it's not like it was a daily thing that was told to me, but often when I accomplished something, I was reminded that I was no better than anybody else. And don't get a big head about this and don't think that you're all that. And when I heard it, I knew I should have expected it, right? I would say like, I get it, I get it, I know. I remember when I was graduating high school, you know, my my one good friend at the time, her parents gave her a trip to Australia. And my other friend was getting like $5,000, right, into a savings account or a, maybe it was an IRA or something like that. You know, she got $5,000. Now, I knew, I knew that my family did not have that kind of money. And so I wasn't really expecting that. But I asked my mom anyway one day. I said, so what am I going to get when I graduate? And my mom said, you're not going to get anything. You're supposed to graduate. Which, you know, as I become a parent, I can laugh at that. I can even see some wisdom in that. And I also know, given the context of the other times things like that were told to me, that there wasn't a celebration of these mile markers. Of course I'm supposed to graduate from high school, but there wasn't necessarily this big recognition. I mean, we went out to dinner as a family, which, you know, wasn't something we did every day, but we went out to dinner as a family. But it's also like, don't celebrate too much. Don't get too much of a big head. Don't think you're all that. Which also starts to say, don't really focus all of your effort on you or something that you're interested in or you're pursuing or you're immersed in. I think also it can be difficult if we as children could never really fully engage in our life because we're trying to survive or we're trying to deal with what comes next. Some of that is about not being seen or not being appreciated or not feeling safe or not feeling secure. I think that's going to get in the way of us having intentionality for our own lives and for our own purposes. He says, if we're lacking in our ability to invoke intentionality, it is usually because we grew up in families where healthy hopefulness was crushed and seemingly extinguished. He says, grieving cleanses our hearts of all the painful disappointments that forced us to finally give up on passionately desiring fulfillment. Grieving empties out old hurts so that there's room in the heart to wish and want and dream again. Grieving rekindles an inner fire which makes us zealous about investing our hopes and desires in the intentions listed below. This is in the book. He'll get into um, some suggested intentions that you can have for your own recovery. Which would be good if you have this book to kind of review and pick out some that you want to focus on and have some intentionality towards. He says, we can now renounce the lie that it is bad and selfish to want and acquire those gifts of life. The fervor of wanting what is rightfully ours can readily be transmuted into motivation for practically attaining it. And then he talks about those suggested intentions. Then he talks about how grieving awakens self-compassion. He says, grieving helps me in the present to more effectively weather the ongoing unpredictable disappointments of life. It commonly restores me to a joyous appreciation of life and its many ongoing rewards. You know, sometimes I, I hear people or like, I mean, I think I've, I'm not friends with these people on Facebook anymore, but it used to drive me crazy how every November 
every day they would list the things that they're grateful for. Not that I have an issue with being grateful or gratitude. I do. And there's a lot of times that I feel gratitude spontaneously. I think I have an issue with forced gratitude in November. Oh, wow, it's Thanksgiving. This is the month we're grateful every single day, right? I I think that was always kind of what just got under my skin or just irritated me. Because I, I wonder how often that is happening. And is it coming from a place of grieving, right? If I can grieve that I have not had this, then I can really feel gratitude for having this. Or am I just making a list of all the great things that I have in my life? I know all of them were not doing that. I do know that. But I just wonder sometimes that our attempts at these different positive emotions while we are bypassing the more difficult emotions. He says, each of us faces losses in the future, many of which will be beyond our control. Grieving helps us to spring back from calamity in a way that naturally takes the shame and despondency out of setbacks. Then he says that grieving also recharges this instinct that we have in us of self-protection. He says, when I allow myself to feel griefful anger about my early abuse, I know that I will never again silently surrender to any repetition of it. And when I talk unashamedly about my childhood losses and connect to my instinctual blaming feelings about that injustice, my desire to invest time and energy in my recovery naturally increases. Effective anger work often spontaneously awakens our basic instinct of self-protection. This recovered instinct is the basis of healthy assertiveness. It allows many survivors to feel safe for the first time in their lives. It can summon up a fierceness as instinctual as a mother bear that can, if necessary, be used to ward off the aggression of others. He says our healthy anger empowers us to persist in recovery even when we are daunted by the unconscious fear that we will be punished as we were in childhood for acting on our own behalf. Anger is essential for extinguishing the learned habits of self-hatred and unproductive self-criticism that impede our growth. And then he talks about emotional flashbacks, which is a great concept. I used to talk about it until I read his work and was introduced to his term, emotional flashbacks. I used to talk about it. Now I'm having a hard time remember how I talked about it. But I used to talk about like time travel. Emotional flashbacks sounds better. Time travel sounds more adventurous maybe. Um, But he says emotional flashbacks are sudden or prolonged regressions into the emotional states that accompanied the traumas of childhood. They are intensely painful experiences of the fear, depression, self-hatred, and shame of the past. He says emotional flashbacks are similar to the flashbacks of combat veterans with the one distinction in that like with combat veterans their emotional flashback they think in the present they are back at war right so they they're present they think they're in the past and with emotional flashbacks it's the opposite we think that our past is actually our present and so I'm experiencing these feelings that I could not emote or express adequately from my past And I make them about my present or the people in my present life. You know, the people in my present life or the circumstances in my present may trigger the emotional flashback. But if I don't know that this is actually 
coming from my past, then I'm going to make it about this person and this person only, or this moment and this moment only. He talks about, I had this thought when he was talking about, he says, emotional flashbacks may even afflict those of us who were not actively abused, but who grew up in families in which there was extensive neglect and disinterest. Minor disappointments in present time adult relationships may trigger the same feelings of emptiness, worthlessness, and loneliness that typically plague emotionally abandoned children. When these flashbacks are at their worst, we may painfully reverberate with every past abandonment and feel as if we are surely once again about to be deserted. Emotional flashbacks, he says, are especially upsetting when the adult child doesn't know what they are. The survivor's feelings of fear and shame rapidly intensify because these sudden emotional eruptions make absolutely no sense. And we're likely to interpret them as just more convincing evidence that we're stupid or terribly defective. I wondered, you know, I talk with a lot of people, I've experienced this myself, but I talk with a lot of clients about imposter syndrome. And as I was reading this part about emotional flashbacks, it made me wonder how much of imposter syndrome is actually an emotional flashback. He also says that one of the most powerful tools for resolving flashbacks in the moment is anger. He says when we allow ourselves to get mad about these revisitations of past intimidations, we can remind ourselves we are no longer helpless children, but rather powerful adults who are quite capable of self-protection. Then he talks about how grieving will decrease somatization, which is like those unrepressed emotions that actually kind of come out as physical sensations in the body. I mean, it can be, there's quite a bit of evidence today that talks about how certain diseases are actually about the body being at dis-ease. It is not at ease with things from the past and it is resulting in physical disease. And often then we're, you know, kind of thrust into this whole process of trying to medicate or manage the physical part of it without recognizing that there's an emotional part of this that has to be looked at and excavated and worked through as well. Then he talks about how grieving opens the door to peace and relief. He says, anxiety is commonly the painful rumbling of feelings trying to surface out of the unconscious into an awareness trained to reject them. Anxiety is the tightening in the belly, chest, throat, and jaw that keeps our feelings under wraps. Ironically, this tightening so intensifies the distressfulness of a simple feeling that we experience it as astronomically more painful than it is in its unobstructed state. Grieving releases our emotional pain, both past and present, and dissolves anxiety. He says that anxiety is then largely relegated to a signaling function that alerts us if we slip back into emotional repression. And then he talks about the grieving restores the heart to love. He says, grieving is the key that unlocks the door to the love that is innate in our hearts. As grieving frees us from the childhood curse of being overguarded in our self-expression, we are able to be more emotionally vulnerable with others. This breaks the spell of believing we have to be at our best to give and receive love. I know that that is something that I have experienced in my own healing process as well as continue as I continue to do my own work 
I'm astounded at how vast that ability to love is. There was a time I, I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't think that about myself. I didn't think that I had a very deep well or a de- deep reservoir of love that actually had no bottom and I wasn't going to run out of it. He says, grieving helps us brave our fears of intimacy and stimulates our desire to communicate and connect in emotionally loving ways. He quotes Ralph Waldo Emerson, who says, though we travel the world over to find the beautiful, we must carry it with us or we find it not. I think that's true as we, as we come out of our childhood and we start to embrace what is beautiful about us as survivors, us as adult children then we can start to heal the pain and we can start to have increased love and loving relationships. Then he just talks about that grieving diminishes denial and minimization. So he says minimization is a way of acknowledging suffering without really feeling it or its effects. He quotes a famous psychoanalyst, Frida Fromm Reichman, who said, it is frequently not the actual events and happenings in the previous lives of patients to which they have become oblivious, but rather the emotional reactions accompanying these events or engendered by them. Sometimes we talk about this in terms of denial. And he talks about like that he's not talking about denial in terms of like how it's used maybe in the addiction recovery world. But coming from the addiction recovery world and working in that for decades, I think actually he is talking about the origin of denial for addicts. He says minimization is a subset of denial. It is acknowledging, but making light of childhood losses. So we maybe can acknowledge it, but we minimize the impact. Or we acknowledge it, but we laugh about it. We tell funny stories. We get together as a family and we talk about these events and we laugh and we talk about them with humor and actually, they were heartbreaking. But he also says, you know, we also have to have compassion and empathy for ourselves because often minimization is what allows us to work through the layering of denial and childhood pain in manageable increments. That for most of us, if we felt all of it fully at the beginning, we actually would not keep working through the pain and the emotion that we're trying to face. And then he says, finally, that grieving alleviates fear and shame. He says, when we are overwhelmed with fear or shame, we are in a death-like state. Fear is the death of feeling safe in our bodies, as shame is the death of self-acceptance and self-worth. Fear and shame kill our enthusiasm for life. You know, I know right now, um, Brene Brown's work is really popular For good reasons, I like her work as well. And she talks about how deadly shame can be to us. But I also liked how he just captured that there that says fear puts us in this death-like state that we're not feeling safe in our bodies. Now, sometimes that is the purpose of fear. It is to get us to be alert and to be aware and to move into action to be safe or to restore some sense of safety to ourselves and escape the danger. But I was talking with a client last week who came in um, with something that he had read in one of Dr. Carnes's workbooks, where it said, fear without threat 
disconnects us from our core. And he was like, I think this is true for me, but I want to talk about it a little bit more because I'm not even sure I'm fully getting it, but it resonates. So we spent a good deal of the session talking about fear without threat. Like our fear is supposed to be there when threat appears. But when we have had fear, when it shouldn't be there, when we shouldn't be unsafe with somebody who should not be a threat to us, that's a different level of fear, right? And it disconnects us from our core. And we will start to do what we, whatever we need to, to please this other person, even at the cost of betraying the self or the core of who we are. He says, fear and shame are essentially emotional states. And although they often have significant cognitive components, they are ameliorated most effectively through the emoting process of grieving. We have to express out, we have to emote out what is behind the shame, what is behind the fear. I should not have been afraid in my home growing up as a child. My home should have been a safe place. And I can grieve the fact that it wasn't. And I can let go of the shame that somehow maybe that was about me. That was about me asking for something or saying something that then resulted in a huge explosion in the house that really should not have ever happened. And that wasn't my fault. That wasn't about me. He quotes um, the philosopher Nietzsche, who said, thoughts are the shadows of our feelings. Always darker, emptier, and simpler. So I thought that was also a good way to reflect back to when we were talking about how thoughts and feelings can coexist and they don't have to be separate when we were talking about holism, that, that thoughts are just the shadows of our feelings and that shadows are darker, they're emptier, and they're simpler. One of the podcasts that I listened to, I haven't listened to it for a little while, but one of the podcasts that I listened to a lot was the podcast Lore with Aaron Mankey and you know, it gets into different folklore and different, like, different scary stories, right? And actual, the truth behind the story, right? And one of the things that's fascinating, and he highlights in many of his episodes, is that the truth was actually scarier than the lore. The story that people were so afraid of, right? was actually less scary than what had actually happened or what had actually taken place. And that's what this quote by Nietzsche reminds me of, is thoughts are the shadows of our feelings, always darker, emptier, and simpler. And then from Leach and Singer's book, he says, acknowledgement helps us to admit, helps us to feel, and to move on from those two conditions which inevitably beset the human soul. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. 
Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.